The following program is brought to you by the Humble Farmer Bed and Breakfast in St. George, Maine. Thank you for listening. I'm the Humble Farmer, and I'm old. How do you know that you're old? You know you're old when you can go to a meeting where people are talking about town history, and you're the only one there who can tell them what was going on, who was doing what in 1951. Well, and when you can do that, you are old. In every community, in all ages, old people have always been valued for what they can remember. Because you remember what Snurri Sturluson, and you have to forgive my Icelandic, I don't speak Icelandic, you remember what Snurri Sturluson said about people who could remember. Of this portion of his reign, the priest Ari Turgilson, the wise, was the first who wrote, and he was both faithful in his story of a good memory and so old a man that he could remember the men and had heard their accounts who were so old that through their age they could remember these circumstances as he himself wrote them in his books and he named the men from whom he received his information. Well, the other day, Glenn Hall, who was one of my neighbor's kids, Glenn Hall came in my brother's driveway and told us that he had dug up a piece of concrete with a steel metal pole in it, long pole. Now, I know that rock pile well. I saw that he had been digging at it, and I was glad to see it was gone, because I used to own that rock pile, and I used to mow the bushes around it. The rocks were very annoying. I didn't know that a metal pole and a piece of concrete were under the rock pile, however. But when Glenn described what they had dug up there, I did know that it was the Scone Flying Red Hoss mobile, mobile, mobile gas sign that Russ Thomas had out front of his garage. I know it was still there in 1955, but by 1970, when I owned the property, it was gone and forgotten, and it had obviously sunk into the ground. When you're old, young people like Glenn Hall, who's only 65, well, these people come around to ask you about things. People come around and ask me about things because I'm old. Hi there, this is Clark Terry here, reminding you to pull your bearskins a little closer to the fire. That's it. <laughs> now you're talking to me. Ah, watch out for those snapping sparks. Everybody cozy? Now the good news is that you're in time for the humble farmer. You've worked hard all day, and you deserve to relax now. So stay right there and listen to the best of this kind of music. Thank you. 
Coach Grant Hamilton here on The Humble Farmer. Thank you for listening. A, a Portland monthly magazine contained a story about a dance at the Blue Goose. I might have been there. After flunking out of music school in Potsdam, New York in 1960, I played at the Blue Goose every Saturday night, played for dances there every Saturday night for five or so years with people like John Parker, Sid Carr, Doug Vinyl, Pat McGee, Roy Swanholm, Izzy Prince, all these different people that played there. And the fellow running the Blue Goose was known as the Fat Man. And the ten bucks the fat man paid me every week financed my undergraduate college education. Back then, tuition at Gorham was $50 or so a semester. My room was $5 a week off campus. And and after rescuing a gallon can of leftover American chop suey from the college kitchen and warming it up over a fire of twigs in the dooryard like a hobo, because we weren't allowed to have a hot plate in the room, of course. Well, after doing that, your average college student was able to eat nicely for a week with the remaining $5. I still give thanks for the Blue Goose. I thank the fat man. It, it did more, the Blue Goose did more for me than our present system does for self-supporting students today. I was pleased that this Portland monthly story about the Blue Goose was labeled fiction. It was a fictional story. I was glad it was labeled fiction because, although the part of the story that described the music from the 40s rang true, because John Parker called the tunes, and the part about the women refusing to dance with some men rang true, only in Sweden have I ever seen women stand in line waiting for the men to ask them to dance?
Django here on the Humble Farmer, where, with any luck at all, you can hear me playing old-fashioned music just for you every week at this time, right here on your favorite radio station. I thank you so much for listening. I am thehumblefarmer at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Do you think, do you think that some posted speed limits are unreasonable? Is Think about this. Is the 25 miles an hour you drive through downtown Camden on a hot afternoon in July, is that 25 miles an hour reasonable for the strip in front of the old Thomaston High School building at 2 o'clock in the morning? Interestingly enough, nobody complains about unreasonable speed limits. They simply drive 10 or 20 miles an hour faster. No one is inconvenienced, no one is annoyed, no one complains and asks that it be changed. Of course, there is a very good chance that you can get arrested for doing 40 miles an hour past the old Thomaston High School building at 2 o'clock in the morning. But not enough people get nailed to make it a community problem. I protest these speed limits that I believe are unreasonable by obeying them. And by so doing, think about this, by obeying these speed limits, I have become one of the most dangerous drivers in Maine. I have the potential to cause more accidents than a high school student on prom night. When it says 25, (laughs) I go 25, drives people crazy. Can you imagine the chaos I cause with 10 or 20 cars behind me bumper to bumper at 25 miles an hour because the speed limit is 25 miles an hour? Can you imagine the hate that boils in their their hearts? Some drivers get so annoyed at me that they pull out a line and roar past me in second gear. You've seen them do it. You know, they get back in line just in time to avoid hitting oncoming cars. Now, I'd like to ask you, should I be arrested for my foolish behavior for obeying the speed limit? The only other way to cause more accidents is to stop at stop signs. People expecting you to run the sign like they're going to do or looking left to see if anyone is coming. They don't see that you've stopped because they're looking left to see if anyone's coming. They ram right into the back end of you. Wham! I confess this. I confess to causing accidents because I stop at stop signs. I am obviously a Menace on the highway because I obey laws. What do you think about this? Do you condemn my foolish behavior?
Do-do-do, Scott Hamilton. Thank you for listening to The Humble Farmer. Would you like to hear a xenophobic story that appeared in my email? i got to warn you, although this story is so politically incorrect that my editor cut it from a recent newspaper column I wrote to prove a point, please understand that I'm telling you this story to prove a point, so please bear with me. Don't, don't shut me off until you've listened to at least 15 minutes more of this show. Although this story was obviously written and circulated to generate a laugh at the way foreigners dress, it transcends this uh, humor, if you'd want to call it humor, and is full of instruction for the reflective mind. We're going to talk about how silly this story is. And the story goes like this. A young Arab boy asks his father, What do you call the hat you are wearing? The father said, It is a chi-chia. In the desert it protects my head from the intense heat of the sun. And what do you call your clothes? Jibella. It protects my body from the hot desert sun. And what about your funny shoes? His father said, These are babuches which keep my feet from burning up on the hot desert sand. So, asked the boy, Why are you wearing such weird threads when you live here in Lewiston, Maine? The answer is, of course, that he would feel uncomfortable and out of place if he were to wear anything else.
Ghana, Ghana, Ghana. Let me push the right button here. That's the one that enables you to hear me if I push that one that says M on it. <laughs> Microphone. <laughs> Ghana. I used to hear that same recording back around 1958. It was on a jukebox when I was bartending in this bar. And that was one of the most popular songs Ghana playing do 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 I always thought Ghana wrote it, but I guess Sheeran wrote it. I don't know. You know about those things. And, but today, anyway, we're to get back to what we're talking about here, we're talking today about the kind of clothing we wear and why we wear what we do. At the beginning of World War II, my father wore very black, very shiny, very pointed shoes. He might have dressed in the manner of Sonny Corleone or someone you might call Dapper Dan. At that time, at the time of world, when World War II started, my father had only been in this country for a dozen years, so he was naturally like many other transplanted Swedes in St. George, Maine, who were most comfortable dressing like they did in Sweden in the 1920s. A few years ago, while traveling, I looked up at a young man who had stepped out of a motel room next to mine. The minute the second I saw him, I spoke to him in Swedish. How did I know he was Swedish? <laughs> he had Swede written all over him. You could tell by just one glance at his haircut, his clothes, his shoes. We chatted. A while ago, at a public sale, I saw a man and woman who might have been 50 years of age. I couldn't place their nationality. I always like to know because I always like get a chance to say a few words in Italian or German or something. I couldn't place their nationality. They weren't Americans, but neither were they German, French. They weren't Scandinavian. I figured they might be Russians, Slavics. So I asked the woman where she was born. Yes, they were from what I would call Yugoslavia. Just their clothes and the way they wore their clothes made them stick out at this sale like a, like a hungry coyote at a chicken picnic. I studied them. You know, I'm interested in people. I like, I like to talk to people. Although they were what I would call very easygoing people, they were at the same time very aggressive buyers. She told me that they were American citizens. But, you know, just becoming a citizen of any country doesn't mean that you can pass for a native, even if you're consciously trying to do so. When, you're, when you move to another country, you are uncomfortable leaving who you are behind. Some of us, I don't know about you, but many of us wouldn't even know how to do it. Thank you. 
There it is again. la ti don't Scott Hamilton. Did I mention recently that you're listening to The Humble Farmer, for which I must thank you with any luck at all. You know, I'm here every week at this time, right here on your favorite radio station, playing old-fashioned music just for you. Love to hear from you. I am thehumblefarmer at gmail.com. And just for you, I don't know if you really want to hear this or not, but I produce a televised version of this show that you can watch on YouTube. And 20 or so years ago, my wife, Masha, the almost perfect woman, and I were squired about Madrid by a handsome young Spanish lawyer. This young Spanish lawyer had once attended a main summer camp where my wife, Masha, had ruled as the queen bee. She'd known him since he was a little boy. It was early evening. We walked into a huge, colorfully illuminated plaza where hundreds of people were eating or drinking at individual tables. Many of these people would remain there in full party mode, talking or singing until sunrise. You know how they do in Spain. Proud of his proud, proud, proud of his social prowess. Our young friend invited us to watch him pick up some American girls. Big question here. I says, how can you tell which ones are Americans? Well, he looked out over the hundreds of seated people in. Then he, he pointed. He says, those two right there, they're Americans. Within minutes, he seated himself at their table and commenced to charm them with his patha. My wife, Masha, and I talked about this many times in the days and weeks that followed. How did he know that they were Americans? Because it was their weird foreign threads. Yes, I admit it, perhaps there might have been other things. Perhaps they didn't sit or hold a glass or even make eye contact in the manner of a young Spanish woman who'd been socializing at these tables since she was 15, but clothes give one away immediately. People are most comfortable in their own culture and their own clothes. When people move, they usually take both with them because, well, it feels right.
McKinney's McKinney's Cotton Pickers. What are we talking about? Oh yeah, we're talking about clothes. How how people do move when they move they take their clothes with them. Because people are most comfortable in their own culture, they're comfortable in their own clothes. I'm looking at my cuffs on my shirt right now. <laughs> and I, I wish you could see the cuffs on my shirt. They're they're more than frayed. They're they're quite quite shabby. It's a wonder my wife hasn't thrown this shirt away. You know, and, and this is the kind of clothes I feel comfortable in. I, I was a single man for between the ages of 34 and 54, and I I was pretty accustomed to to wearing anything I I had, and I would wear it till it dropped from my body. As I said, when people move to another country or another culture, they usually take both with them because it feels right. I feel right in these clothes I'm wearing right now even though it might shock you if you were to see me. Our elderly neighbors also resist change, and they are likely to dress in the way they did 40, 50, 60 years before. When I graduated from high school in 1953 and attended my first high school reunion, I remember that the old folks who showed up at this St. George High School reunion, well, they were dressed like old people. And the same was true when you saw them at Grange. When my grandmother went to church, she she and the other old women wore tiny hats with veils. They had veils on their hats. And they probably wore these same veils when, when veils were fashionable for young folks back in 1910 or so. My grandmother and her friends would have been uncomfortable dressing any other way. Men who have been single for 40 years often have no idea what they're wearing or the effect that it has on other people. 30 years ago, before I was married, I once showed up on the doorstep of a lady friend to be greeted with, listen to this, this is what she said when I showed up at her doorstep. She said, here he is, all dressed up in his rags. (laughs) I've never forgotten that. Think about this. The top-paid women on television squeeze their toes into spiked-heeled shoes that are guaranteed to destroy their feet. And when you look at them, you wonder, should we dress for our own personal comfort or should we dress to please the social whims of others? You know, if I were in London, I would feel like a fool rigged out in a bowler hat and clothes that fit me. I would even feel uncomfortable in Portland, Maine in clothes that fit me.
an augmented 11th. Wee. My friends, oh, we got time for a couple more here. My friends on Facebook have had a lot to say about my saying that I'm 80 and old. My friend Peter, who is a minister, said that he is 76. Now, if you think about this, 76 is really not as old as 70. 76 is not a benchmark or a milestone. Anybody can be 76. You don't think about it when you turn 76. Now, I don't even remember a 70 was any big deal, but 70 was probably a, it's a benchmark and milestone. 75, I got to admit, that's probably a biggie too. Oh, I'm 75. But 76, one of those in-between ages, that's nothing to talk about. But as Peter said, my minister friend Peter said, 80 is old. 80 is four years older than 76. This is critical when you're trying to remember things that happened 75 years ago. Because if you're 80, you can answer questions about things that happened 75 years ago, whereas someone who is 76 can't, unless they're someone like Cotton Mather. Wouldn't you guess that 90 is another biggie? My wicked stepmother is 92. My friend Alden Bent up in Dover Foxcroft is 92. And I suspect that Alden will probably see 100 because he is in very good shape indeed. Although they took his driver's license, Alden passed out one time, so they took his license. Because I'd be scared to drive if I thought I'd pass out, wouldn't you? I, I remember... I can't remember the guy's name. I can see him in my mind, but I can't remember what his name was. Gusti Radakin or something like that. He, he died. I remember he died when he was driving his car a long, long time ago. I, I used to put gas in his car for him at the gas station where I worked in 1951. His girlfriend, this story is memorable because his, his girlfriend was with him when he died behind the wheel of his car, and his girlfriend was able to grab the wheel she said, good thing I was there, or it's hard telling what might have happened to him. Dancing may do this and that, and help you take off lots of fat, but I'm no friend of dancing when it's... So if you are a dancing fool Who loves to dance but can't keep cool Bear in mind the idea that I've got When it gets too hot for comfort And you can't get ice cream cones Paint no sin to take off your skin And dance around in your bones When the lazy syncopation Of the music softly moans Taint no sin to take off the skin and dance around in your bones. The polar bears aren't green up in Greenland. They've got the right idea. They think it's great to refrigerate while we all cremate down here. Just be like those bamboo babies in the South Sea tropic zones. Taint no sin to take off the skin and dance around in your bones. When you're calling up your sweetie, in those hot house telephones, taint 
no sin to take off the skin and dance around in your bones when you're on a crowded dance floor near those red hot saxophones oh taint no sin to take off the skin and dance around in your bones take a look at the girls when they're dancing notice the way they're dressed they wear silken clothes without any holes and nobody knows the rest no more singing in the bathtub with those television phones. Taint no sin to take off the skin and dance around in your bones. I think I wanted to tell you about visiting Sarah. Lee Savory likes that story, visiting Sarah, but I'm not going to have time to tell it. I've been meaning to for two weeks now. Maybe I'll get that in. If you see Lee's tell her that uh, Humble is getting ready to tell the, getting ready to tell the, uh, what do you call it, the visiting Sarah song. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 